Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. This is Tuesday, February 7. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, this story by Aaron Jordan is titled, Order Calls for C60 to Pay for Cleanup. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources no longer has a deadline by which C60 must clean up a Marengo site damaged in an explosion two months ago, but is requiring the company to pay more than $400,000 for the work. This is according to a consent order filed Monday morning, hours before C60 was scheduled to be in court, facing a lawsuit filed by the Iowa Attorney General. The parties agreed to an aggressive performance time frame and substantial financial commitments, the Iowa DNR said in a statement. This agreement negated the need for a hearing today and avoided the inherent delays in waiting for the court to issue a ruling. C60's failure to comply with these terms will be a violation of the court's order, exposing it to contempt of court, and may trigger U.S. EPA involvement, including site cleanup and cost recovery. The consent order signed by the 6th Judicial District Chief Judge Lars Anderson requires C60 by Thursday to pay EcoSource, a Des Moines area contractor, $330,000 to start cleanup at the site of the December 8 fire and explosion. The firm must also pay $75,000 into a trust account to fund assessment and remediation work at the property. If this fund gets too low, C60 must replenish it. C60 has until February 17 to complete the requirements of a site assessment plan the Iowa DNR outlined in an emergency order nearly two months ago. By that date, the company also must give the agency a list of all chemical substances on site, including components of a mysterious solvent owner Howard Brand III was using to attempt to dissolve roofing shingles at the facility. By March 3, the company must submit a remedial action plan. The consent order doesn't say when the cleanup must be done, only that C60 must continue to fully comply with the emergency order until all requirements are satisfied by defendants as determined by the DNR. C60 must allow DNR officials to visit the site with prior and reasonable notice. The company has barred state inspectors from the site at least three times in the past year, most recently on January 24. An explosion December 8th at the facility caused a fire that took eastern Iowa firefighters 18 hours to extinguish. A dozen people were injured, nearby neighbors were evacuated, and the fire left polluted soil and water. The Iowa DNR announced Monday it would pay private companies Tetrasolve and Rain for Rent to treat the contaminated water in a 12 million gallon stormwater retention basin near the C60 site. This project is expected to take four weeks. In order to get work underway as soon as possible, the state is paying for the contract but will seek reimbursement from C60, the DNR said. While most of the polluted water is corralled in the basin for now, Marengo this spring will need to release water into the Iowa River which supplies drinking water to downstream communities, including Iowa City. The Iowa County Drainage District will create a diversion channel 
to allow snowmelt and rain to flow into the Iowa River, bypassing the stormwater basin, the agency reported. This will prevent the need for additional water treatment inside the basin. The Iowa Attorney General's Office filed a lawsuit January 11 against C60 and Brand after the Iowa DNR said the company was late filing a plan for how to clean up the site. The plan also didn't meet the 45-day deadline set out in the December 15 emergency order. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is investigating C60's practices and how the company handled the explosion. The Iowa County Emergency Management Agency sent a demand order to C60 last month requiring the company to pay more than $600,000 for equipment damaged when area firefighters put out the blaze. The mysterious Mysterious chemicals used at the site have contaminated clothing and equipment, making it unsafe for future firefighting. Also on the front page, this story by Grace King, Educators Earn License in Iowa City Schools Fellowship. Aaron Martin heard some chuckles from his students when he was demonstrating different jump rope tricks in a physical education class at Grant Elementary School in Iowa City. They need to see you make mistakes, too, Martin said with a grin. Martin loves seeing the smiles on his students' faces when they reach their goals. On this day, some of the kids' goals were to be able to turn the rope and jump over it successfully. Other students wanted to complete a more challenging jump. Martin is a teaching fellow at the Iowa City Community School District's Grow Your Own program part of the district's diversity, equity, and inclusion plan to attract and retain more teachers and administrators of color. It's important for young black boys to see people like them represented as teachers and leaders in their schools, said Martin. He recalls having only one black teacher and few male role models growing up in the Iowa City School District. Through the program, Martin is able to work full-time while earning a bachelor's degree in K-12 through health and physical education with a reading endorsement at William Penn University. The district pays 50% toward his continuing education. Being able to financially take care of my family was a big part of it, said Martin, adding the program is preparing him for what to expect as a first-year teacher. This is the second year of the district's Grow Your Own program, which started with a two-year fellowship for teachers to gain experience in administration. Now there are opportunities for support staff like Martin to work toward their teaching degree and high school students to explore a career in education. Grow Your Own was funded with elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds received by districts to offset costs of the COVID-19 pandemic. The district received more than 40 applications and selected 14 fellows for the administrative fellowship last year. Iowa City Schools Deputy Superintendent Chase Ramey said the fellows will be competitive applicants for open administrative positions in the district this spring. The administrative fellows are guaranteed a teaching position in the district if a leadership role is not immediately available. District officials are examining the school's budget before deciding whether to move forward with a second round of administrative fellows this fall, Ramey said. 
I'm optimistic we'll be able to continue the fellowship program in some manner, said Remy, adding the school board and district leadership feel strongly about it. Last spring, the district also launched a student version of the program, aiming to support students interested in teaching careers, especially students of color. The district is working with Educators Rising, a curriculum for students to learn about the profession and explore career opportunities, develop skills they need, and make informed decisions about pathways to becoming a teacher. Students are encouraged to enroll in Kirkwood Community College's Education Academy to earn free college credit while they're in high school and to explore their career interest. Upon graduation from college, students are guaranteed a position in the Iowa City Community School District if there is an opening. There are about 40 students in the program this year, said Carmen Guenigal, who worked to develop the Grow Your Own program as part of her administrative fellowship last year. Gwenegale said being a leadership fellow in the Iowa City School District opened the door for her to be the Iowa City Schools Director of Curriculum, Assessment, and Instruction this year. About 7% of teachers in the Iowa City Community School District are people of color, while 43% of the students are young people of color. There are less individuals going into teaching than ever before, Ramey said. If we can generate that interest early and show the great career it can be, we think we can motivate them to come back and teach in Iowa City. It's a long-term investment for us because we know most teachers stay in the communities they grew up in, Ramey said. It's a smart investment to make in our community as we try to support and bring more diverse students to the teaching profession. Brian Parker, an administrative fellow at Southeast Junior High School this year, said the fellowship was a unique opportunity to explore being a principal. After his first semester of the program last year, Parker made the decision to go back to school to earn his master's degree in educational leadership and principal license at the University of Iowa. Growing up, Parker recalls having only one administrator of color to look up to in school. He wants to be that beacon for others and encourage students to go out and achieve great things. Lemmy Elementary School Principal Ashley Mangan also found success in the fellowship program. Walking into Lemmy Elementary last year as a fellow felt like home. When the former principal left to pursue another opportunity in the district, Mangan was there, ready and confident to fill the position. It was so positive and fueled my desire to want to be in that leadership role, Mangan said. It was the best experience possible. Also on the front page today, this story by Vanessa Miller, State Settles with Surgeon Years After Operating Room Clash. Wrapping up a medical drama that started 12 years ago in the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics operating room, the State Appeal Board agreed Monday to settle a 2020 lawsuit from a former employee in accusing UIHC of improperly sharing details of the incident with prospective employers. The settlement pays former cardiothoracic and vascular surgeon Domenico Calcaterra, now of Florida, a modest sum of $55,000. 
well below the more than $1.4 million he sought at one point, according to court records. Calcaterra sued UIHC, the Board of Regents, and the state in August 2020 for breach of contract by releasing information about his November 2010 operating room incident to prospective employers, saying he lost job opportunities because of it. The Iowa Board of Medicine in 2013 publicly accused Calcaterra of a pattern of disruptive behavior and or unethical and unprofessional conduct, issuing a news release outlining accusations that Calcaterra shoved another doctor during a 2010 surgery, according to media reports. A year later, the board's disciplinary action wrapped with a settlement penalizing Calcaterra with a citation, warning, and $5,000 fine. The board posted that settlement on its website and issued another news release reiterating allegations against the doctor, although those allegations had not been admitted to or even recited in the settlement, according to court document. Years later, Calcaterra, who voluntarily left UIHC in 2012, said the settlement and details still were available on the board's public website and adversely impacted his medical career. In 2018, he asked the board whether Iowa law bars it from making investigative information public, and the board didn't answer that question or issue any order on the matter. After courts and judges got involved, the board answered no to his question. In April 2020, a district court disagreed and found Iowa law to be clear and unambiguous in barring public disclosure of investigative information. The Iowa Supreme Court eventually agreed with the district court. In August 2020, Calcaterra sued UIHC, citing specific incidents of professional harm, including when he was hired in November 2019 for a job in Florida, but was rejected at the last minute. The credentialing official for that hospital group shared a letter from the UIHC dated June 14, 2019, that was addressed to the hospital's recruiting agency and disclosed previous allegations against him, according to his lawsuit. The saga over the years came to the fore and set precedent on several occasions for several reasons including when a judge ruled Calcaterra couldn't sue under a pseudonym, and when the High Court in 2021 found that the facts that brought about the charges are precisely the type of investigative information that the legislature intended to be privileged and confidential. The State Appeal Board also agreed Monday to settle a 2021 lawsuit in which a former acting director of UIHC's Central Sterilizing Services accused the University of Gender and Pay Discrimination, asserting she was excluded from meetings and decision-making, paid less, and fired after reporting concerns of bias and unsafe practices. The settlement pays Courtney Mace Davis a total of $312,500, which includes attorney fees. Davis, through her lawsuit, accused UIHC and the Board of Regents not only of gender and pay discrimination, but also retaliation for reporting her concerns. She sought compensation for lost wages, humiliation, anguish, and weakened employment opportunities. She also asked the court to force UIHC to take steps to prevent discrimination in the future, 
like imposing training, implementing monitoring, and barring disproportionate discipline for women. Neither of Monday's approved settlements constitute an admission of guilt, according to the documents. Turning to the Iowa Today page, this story by Emily Anderson, mobile home park manager accused of derecho fraud. A former manager of a mobile home park in Mount Vernon is facing charges of theft and fraud after police say he lied to his employer about damage in the 2020 derecho. Antonio Govia, 44, of Mount Vernon, is charged with ongoing criminal conduct, first-degree theft, money laundering, first-degree fraudulent practice, and two counts of forgery. Govia was employed as the park manager of Colonial Estates Mobile Home Park at 1225 First Avenue Northwest, Mount Vernon, between July 1, 2020 and May 15, 2022, according to a criminal complaint. After the derecho, Govia told Birch Realty, the company that owns the park, that certain mobile homes there had been irreparably damaged in the storm and that he needed the titles to the property so he could work directly with a salvage and demolition contractor to dispose of the homes, according to an application for injunction filed by property owners. Govia then transferred the titles of those mobile homes into his own name and performed some minor repairs before continuing to rent out some of the homes without the knowledge or permission of the park owners. He transferred ownership of two other trailers to other individuals, the injunction application asserts. Govia filed fraudulent paperwork with the Lynn County Treasurer's Office regarding the sale of mobile homes and made more than $10,000 in profit from the fraud, the criminal complaint states. The park owners requested that the court put an injunction on Govia and other individuals to whom he had transferred mobile homes to prevent them from moving the homes that are currently in their names until after the criminal proceedings. The application for an injunction was filed February 3, and a response has not been filed yet. Govia had his initial appearance last Thursday on the criminal charges and was released from custody on a $25,000 surety bond. In Iowa City, an Iowa City man was convicted last year on federal child pornography charges and was sentenced Monday in state court to 10 years in prison for sexual abuse of a 14-year-old girl in 2020. This story is by Trish Mahaffey. Luke Kenneth Beckner, age 21, previously pleaded guilty to third-degree sexual abuse of a 14-year-old girl over a period of four weeks, according to a criminal complaint. Beckner, 19 at the time, met the girl on Snapchat, and they began talking. He then picked her up on different occasions and drove her to his home to have sex. According to the complaint, records obtained during the investigation corroborated the victim's account. Becker initially denied having sex with the minor. He also was charged with picking up two 14-year-old girls he met through Snapchat between December 22 and 23 of 2020, taking them to his home and giving them marijuana. The charge of distributing drugs to a minor was dismissed Monday as part of a plea agreement. Sixth Judicial Judge Paul Miller sentenced Beckner to 10 years in prison and also ordered him to be on the sex offender registry for life, as well as serve a special sentence of lifetime parole.
Miller also ordered a five-year no-contact order against Beckner to protect the victim. Beckner declined to make a statement at sentencing. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial is a reprint from the New York Daily News titled, Refugees Want Jobs and the Economy Wants Workers. With a total of 517,000 new jobs created last month and total employment estimates revised up, the country now has the lowest unemployment rate in more than half a century. The numbers cooled recession fears, and while some economists and policymakers fret that the robust labor gains are going to send us into an inflationary tailspin, inflation indicators have actually been trending positively, even as hiring has remained robust. Perhaps some of the conventional wisdom about the need to bludgeon wage and job gains to suppress inflation isn't so common sense after all. What is common sense is using a pool of available, ready, and willing workers to fill a strong labor need. Thousands of asylum seekers are waiting a statutorily required six months between when they make their application and when they can be issued work authorization. Languishing even as they beg for the opportunity to fill available jobs and support themselves as they wait for their proceedings to play out. More broadly, hundreds of thousands of refugees around the world want nothing more than to come to the United States and reestablish lives here through hard work and entrepreneurship, both filling and creating jobs and growing the economy into a more prosperous one for the country as a whole. Yet a general lack of urgency from the Biden administration has left admissions low and left people in harm's way instead of the relative safety and prosperity of the U.S. There are some recent positive signs, like the State Department's launch of a program allowing groups of private citizens to directly sponsor refugees. This should be just one of many initiatives to get the refugee pipeline reestablished. On some matters, it must be Congress to intervene, including undoing the silly wait time for asylum seekers to work to receive work authorization, and perhaps at long last, moving to reform employment immigration pathways. We can do the right thing by those fleeing violence and persecution, and do right by our economy. Win-wins are are rare in public policy, and this is one worth taking. And again, that's a reprint from the New York Daily News. The guest column today is titled, Taking Stock of Gun Violence, and is submitted by Patricia Zabrowski. In July of 2012, I was working at a conference for children and teenagers who stutter and their parents in Aurora, Colorado. After a full day of workshops, panel discussions, and open mic sessions, a group of teens got permission to go to the midnight premiere of the latest Batman movie at a multiplex theater near the hotel. It was on that night that James Holmes entered one of the theaters and emptied multiple rounds from four guns into the audience, killing 12 people and injuring 60 others. Bullets passed through the wall of the adjoining theater where our group was and wounded one of them. The following hours were fraught with chaos, shock, and panic by parents and conference organizers as the news of the shooting reached us in the early morning hours. Police, firefighters, and medical teams had taken the dead and wounded 
to five area hospitals and triaged the remaining 1,200 theater goers into groups to be interviewed at a local high school. It would be hours before we knew whether our kids were safe or among the wounded and dead. It is something I will never forget and that I revisit every time there is yet another mass shooting of children in our country, and it can happen in Iowa. February 1 through 7 marks the fifth annual National Gun Violence Survivors Week. The date marks the approximate time that gun deaths in the United States surpass the number of gun deaths experienced by peer countries in an entire calendar year. Gun violence in any form leaves an indelible mark on the lives of those who are personally affected. Gun violence changes lives every single day. Whether someone has witnessed an act of gun violence, been threatened or wounded with a gun, or had a loved one wounded or killed with a gun, anyone who has personally experienced gun violence is a survivor, and to our deep shame, we have become a nation of survivors. In Iowa, the rate of gun deaths increased 56% from 2011 to 2020, compared to a 33% increase nationwide. And every year, over 500 people are wounded by the guns in the state. Most shooting victims survive, but many face a long ordeal of pain and medical care that collectively costs patients, hospitals, and governments billions of dollars each year. In Iowa, gun violence costs $4.2 billion each year, of which $53 million is paid for by taxpayers. It's hard to imagine that death, injury, trauma, and cost from gun violence will decrease in Iowa since the legislature has steadily gutted gun safety laws, even as most of our citizens support sensible legislation. Add to this the recent passing of an amendment to our state constitution that will undoubtedly close the door on sensible laws. National Gun Violence Survivors Week is a time to take stock of the terrible human toll of America's gun violence crisis and recommit to supporting survivors with action. Read and listen to their stories at momentsthatsurvive.org. Listen to survivors you know or share your own story. We cannot and must never look away. Patricia Zabrowski is a professor emerita from the University of Iowa who came to Iowa City three years before a UI student used a gun to kill five people and seriously injure a student before committing suicide. In the community letters for today, we have one letter titled, Kim Reynolds' plan to ban books is dark irony. One would imagine that advocating for statewide book bans, and that is in reference to Reynolds, if one school removes a book, all schools should, published February 4, would be a red flag to our governor that she's wading into treacherous waters. But apparently neither Governor Kim Reynolds nor the poorly named Moms for Liberty is capable of pausing for self-reflection. If one Iowa school decides to remove a book from its library, all Iowa schools would be required to do the same under a proposal floated this week by Governor Kim Reynolds at an event hosted by a national group that advocates for parents' rights in public education. Beyond the absurdity of such a race to the bottom, 
where any single community school board would be able to prevent an entire state from encountering materials they find objectionable lies a dark irony. It is not the radical left that is seeking to cancel views with which they dis disagree under penalty of law, but our own government that now seeks to further marginalize and silence any of its own citizens who do not subscribe to a blinkered version of the American experience. Once again, the Reynolds administration is sending clear signals to any young Iowan wishing to per pursue a meaningful teaching career in our state. You're not wanted. And that's signed today by Eric Gadal of Iowa City. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, February 7, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituary page, starting with the short notices. First from Cedar Rapids, Wallace R., known as Wally Krauss, age 90, died Monday, February 6th. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Cedar Rapids, Erwin Votrubeck, 86, died Sunday, February 5th, Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center. In Claremont, Larry Troy Smith, age 59, died Monday, January 31st, Shooty Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Decorah, Donald Hansen, age 83, died Friday, January 27. Helms Funeral Home is in charge. In Earlville, Carol Ann Rathel, 86, died Sunday, February 5. Clifton Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Marion, Ruth Elaine Drips, age 87, died Sunday, February 5. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Monona, Lois Bruon, age 87, died Friday, February 3. Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Sigourney, Mary Martha Holt, 87, died Sunday, February 5. Home Funeral Home is in charge. In Tipton, Hugh Winston Stumbo, age 91, died Sunday, February 5. The Fry Funeral Home is assisting the family. From Toledo, Mildred May Wilson, age 96, died Monday, February 6. Cruz Phillips Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. And in West Liberty, Donald, known as Donnie Reif, age 70, died Sunday, February 5. Henderson Barker Funeral Home is assisting the family. And from Prairie Duchene, Wisconsin, Susan Elaine Zimmerman, age 68, formerly of Clarksville, Iowa, died Saturday, February 4, Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Turning now to the regular notices, first in Cedar Rapids, Edward J. Walter, age 98, passed away Saturday, February 4. A rosary will begin at 4 p.m. Tuesday, February 7, with a visitation to follow until 7 p.m. at Cedar Memorial Westside Chapel in Cedar Rapids. A funeral mass will be held on Wednesday, February 8, and that's at St. Jude Catholic Church. Burial will be at Mount Calvary Catholic Church, or excuse me, Catholic Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. 
Also in Cedar Rapids, Tim E. Murray, age 56, died Thursday, February 2nd. There will be a small service held at 1 p.m. Tuesday, February 7, at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, 1500 Boyson Road Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Memorials may be directed to his son, Dakota Murray. In Oxford Junction, Barbara J. Hoffner, age 77, passed away on January 2nd in Olin. Her family has granted her wishes of a cremation and no services will be held. Dawson Funeral Services of Oxford Junction is assisting her family and online condolences can be left online at DawsonFuneral.com. In Iowa City, excuse me, in Central City, Daniel known as Dan Joseph Welderbach, age 68, of Central City, passed away Saturday, February 4, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. In agreement with his wishes, cremation has taken place. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, February 8, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation in Marion. Memorial service will begin at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 9, at the Funeral Home. Please share a memory of Daniel at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Iowa City, Janice Greer Hubble of Iowa City died at Oak Knoll Residence, where she had lived since 2015 with her husband, Ken. A gathering for family and friends to share memories and support will be held Wednesday, February 8, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City for a more complete obituary and to share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit gayandchia.com. From Marion, Gunter Hundorf, age 93, passed away Saturday, February 4, surrounded by his family. A private family graveside service will be held at Oak Shade Cemetery in Marion. Please share a memory of Gunter at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Brighton, Janet Mary Strabella Fritz, age 83, passed away at her home February 2nd. A funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. Thursday, February 9, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in East Pleasant Plain, with the Reverend Damien Ilocaba officiating. Burial will follow at St. Joseph Cemetery. A rosary will be held at 3.30 p.m. Wednesday, February 8th at the church, followed with visitation until 7 p.m. The family invites you to make a donation to St. Joseph Church, St. Joseph Cemetery Association, or the Brighton Volunteer Firefighters Association in her memory. Gifts may be left at the church or mailed to the family. From Marion, Michael Arthur Conry died unexpectedly at his home in Marion on February 2 at the age of 45. Visitation is Wednesday, February 8 from 4 to 7 p.m. at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Services are Thursday, February 9 at St. Mark's Lutheran Church, 8300 C Avenue in Marion at 10 a.m. Mike's family asks that those attending the funeral service wear something yellow so their son Arthur will see his favorite color in all gathered as they mourn the death of his best buddy and father. A private family burial will be at a later date. Donations can be made to Community Health Free Clinic, 947 14th Avenue, 
Cedar Rapids. In Cedar Rapids, Leola, known as Lee Thornbloom, age 91, passed away Saturday, February 4, at the Gardens Care Center in Cedar Rapids. The family will be present to receive friends and family from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Thursday, February 9, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Interment will be immediately following at the Czech National Cemetery. A luncheon will follow the interment at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids. Memorials may be made to the charity of your choice. In Cedar Rapids, Reverend J. Richard Ernst, 88, passed away Thursday, February 2. Memorial services are at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 11 at Hillside Wesleyan Church in Cedar Rapids by Pastor Kirk Statler. Visitation will be from 9 to 11 a.m. on Saturday at the church. Private family burial will be held at a later date. Arrangements are with Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services. From North Liberty, Kenneth, known as Ken, Eugene Fredrickson, age 65, passed away Wednesday, February 1. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. From Iowa City, Florine, known as Rini Lloyd, age 88, of rural Iowa City, died Sunday, February 5, at the Atrium Village in Hills. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, February 10th, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Hills, burial at Memory Gardens in Iowa City. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. Memorial donations in her memory can be made to the Iowa City Animal Care and Adoption Center. For a complete obituary and to share a memory or condolence, please visit the Gay and Chia Funeral Service website, gayandchia.com. From Marion, Mary Bernice Knapp Noller. My name is Mary Bernice Knapp Noller. My journey began on October 20, 1952 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The obituary continues with a letter, obviously, she has written, and concludes with the funeral arrangements, which will be on Wednesday, February 8, at 11 a.m., with a visitation one hour before service at Murdoch Funeral Home, 3855 Cats Drive in Marion. Please donate in her honor to the Cedar Valley Humane Society and share a memory at MurdochFuneralHome.com. And lastly, Virginia Pearl Olinger Beener from Marion, age 91, passed away peacefully on Saturday, February 4, at Summit Point Senior Living Community in Marion. The family will greet friends and family from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 9, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 10, at the funeral home, officiated by Mike Olinger. Burial will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Memorials in her memory may be made to either Camp Courageous or a favorite charity of your choice. Please visit MurdochFuneralHome.com to leave a condolence or memory. Turning now to the sports page, this story by K.J. Pilcher, Wrestling Weekend That Was, IGHSAU Reflecting on Historic Event. 
The inaugural Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Tournament kicked off the Wrestling Festival of High School Championships at Xtreme Arena in Coralville last weekend, concluding with the Boys State Duels Tournament. The historic first day of the Girls State Tournament was completely sold out. A swell of ticket seekers bought more than 2,700 tickets in the 12 hours that led up to the opening whistle. More than 5,000 fans produced an electric and frenzied atmosphere with rolling eruptions of cheers and screams from different sections. It's really cool that it was sold out. Union Communities' Jillian Worthen said, There is a lot more pink than I expected, but I think it's really cool that people from everywhere, like I know people from Illinois watching online too. It's cool the wrestling community has grown so much. The tournament had plenty of pomp and circumstance to help create the celebration it deserved to be, including a grand march with younger girls leading each weight of medalists behind Marshal Nadine Johnston, a female pioneer in officiating. Special extras included match winners signing their name on the official tournament bracket when they advanced. Titleists penned their autograph on the champion line in front of the crowd immediately after the championship bout. I think it shows what organizations are capable of when they have a great team of people, IGSAU Associate Director Aaron Kirtley said, and so devoted to the Iowa girl and committed to providing the best opportunities. The com competition and skill level entertained and impressed the casual fan, as well as the family, friends, and classmates in the venue. The field engaged in thrilling big moves, dominant performances, and edge-of-your-seat finishes. Girls wrestling has evolved, and the wrestlers are the catalysts of the growth. There are girls coming in that have been wrestling since they were four years old. You know how we see boys wrestling currently, said Decora, 170-pound state champion Naomi Simon, who finished 37-0 with an 82-0 career mark. Giving more, girl more girls opportunities, it's just boosting the competition, and I love it because I get to wrestle more. Extreme Arena provided an intimate and energetic environment. Questions around the size of the venue will need to be addressed as a tidal wave of fans looked for walk-up tickets. Some were turned away after tickets sold out. The venue is more than capable of hosting the tournament. For me, I think probably 90 to 95 percent of the things that we heard were good things, Curtly said. In boys basketball, this story by Jeff Johnson, a huge week for number one Kennedy. Cedar Rapids Kennedy's boys basketball team continues to hold Class 4A's top spot in the Iowa High School Athletic Association rankings. If the same thing can be said a week from now, the Cougars will truly have earned it. Kennedy, at 16-0, has three games. Tuesday night against Iowa City West, Thursday night against Iowa City High, and Saturday afternoon at number 4 West Des Moines Valley. West is just 10-7, and seven, but has lost a lot of close games and recently returned Kareem Earl, one of its top players, from injury. Valley's losses have been to number 2 Waukee, number 3 Waukee Northwest, and number six, Ankeny Centennial. The Tigers have won eight in a row. Central Lion returns to the top spot in 2A after a one-week absence. The Lions, at 15-1, replace Western Christian 
which lost a pair of games last week and dropped to sixth. Al Burnett has fallen out of the 2A rankings after losing last week to Wilton. Dyersville Beckman at 15-5 and five jumps in at number 10. The Blazers have won 10 of their last 11 games. Bondurant Farrar at 17-0 continues to hold the top spot in Class 3A as it's, lone unbeaten, as it's alone unbeaten. Clear Lake is second, MOC Floyd Valley third, and Newton fifth. Cedar Rapids Xavier at 12 and 5 jumped ahead of Marion at 15 and 4 this week with the Saints fifth and the Wolves sixth. Xavier lost a 61-60 game last week to 4A, eighth-ranked Dubuque Senior, then blew out Linmar, while Marion lost to Mount Vernon and clinched the Walmart Conference East Division Championship with a win over Independence. Grandview Christian and North Lynn remain 1 and 2 in Class 1A with identical 19 and 0 records. The Thunder have beaten teams by an average of 29.6 points per game despite a schedule filled with Class 3A and 4A opponents. Turning now to the community page, here are some things to do today. Oral histories live. Hear from Peter Tian of Robbins a funeral director, author, mental health professional, and traumatologist, and pilot, founder of the International Mass Fatalities, Facility, excuse me, Fatality Center and America Ready, Tian also is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Iowa. He will be speaking at the History Center at 6 p.m. It's Trivia Night at Jersey's Pub and Grub from 7 to 9 p.m., all ages are welcome to test their general knowledge in this team trivia event without using any electronic devices. That is free. In the gardening category, Lynn County Master Gardener Sam Crumboltz will show you how to instill your love of gardening in your children or grandchildren. Learn tips, techniques, and resources to enhance your experience with the kids and help them along the path to become a lifelong gardener. That's at the Hiawatha Public Library from 6.30 to 7.30. That is also free. And here are two Eastern Iowa briefs. First, from Cedar Rapids, Granny Basketball returns to area courts. Women of a certain age, in quotes, are getting ready to lace up and take the court for a 19th year of six-on-six -six basketball. The nonprofit Granny Basketball League offers women ages 50 and older a healthy exercise option combined with charitable giving and enthusiastic competition across eight states in the central United States. League action will begin with the 16th annual Granny Basketball Jamboree from 9 to 3, February 11 at Trinity Lutheran School, 1371 7th Avenue Southwest. Teams within the league's footprint will compete with one another, their court style blending itself with the play and rules of yesteryear, with participants sporting a colorful adaptation of uniforms from the 1920s. Trinity Lutheran volunteers will serve lunch and hold a bake sale. This event is open to the public by free will donation benefiting Meals on Wheels, which delivers hot, nutritious meals to homebound older adults in Cedar Rapids and the surrounding area. 
In case of inclement weather, the Jamboree will be rescheduled to February 18th. And tickets are on sale for farm-to-table dinner at the Nature Center. Wilson's Cider House will be serving guests when the farm-to-table meal returns to the Indian Creek Nature Center, 5300 Otis Road, and that is from 6 to 9 p.m. on March 9. The Wilson Cider House Kitchen, led by Chef Matt Stegerwald, sources the majority of its key ingredients from within 20 miles. Tickets are $135 and available at indiancreeknaturecenter.org slash gallery slash farm-to-table dinner. Antarctic Adventure is the title of this article by Vanessa Miller. In 2018, or excuse me, in a 2018 video honoring Waterloo Elementary teacher Stacy Snyder with the governor's IOWA STEM teacher award, one of her kids said she knows how to amaze students. Years later, Snyder is continuing to astonish in the classroom and out of it most recently by sailing south to where a traffic jam is made of ice instead of cars. In retrospect, I am so thankful I went to Antarctica because it's probably not a place I would go on my own, Snyder said, acknowledging her dislike of the cold. Now that I've been there, I feel differently. The expanded learning program and gifted student resource teacher at Orange and Lowell Elementary Schools in Waterloo will be sharing about her November 2019 Antarctic expedition during an event at Wolfie's Wapsie Outback in Quasquatan. And in brief, if you go, it's titled Stacy Snyder Antarctic Expedition. Again, it's at Wolfie's Wapsie Outback 101 Water Street, Quasquatan, that takes place from 5.30 to 8 p.m. February 19. Cost is $30. Tickets can be obtained at BuchananCountyParks.com under the Public Events tab, or you can call Buchanan County Conservation Nature Center at 319-636-2617. Snyder will focus on impacts of climate change on Antarctica and its wildlife and how actions in Iowa can impact the world and its wildlife in even the most remote areas. She will present an audiovisual story, share how she is using her experiences in her classroom teaching, and answer questions at the end. It is sponsored by Friends of Fontana Park as a fundraiser to support education opportunities for the Buchanan County Conservation Board. Turning to the Business 380 page, and I'll abbreviate this in the interest of time, Brittany Clark loves to clean and vehicles are her specialty. It's just so satisfying to see the before and afters, she said. Brittany's Cleaning Services offers full interior detailing for all types of vehicles. That work includes vacuuming, shampooing, leather cleaning and conditioning, stain removal, pet hair removal, window and mirror cleaning, and more. Pet hair can be difficult, Clark said. On average, pet hair removal can add two to four more hours onto your detail. And if you want to check her out, it's Brittany Clark's Cleaning Services. You can find her online at Brittany Clark's Cleaning Services, LLC.com, or she has a Facebook presence. 
Finishing up with the weather today, temperatures are gradually starting to warm up. Last year there were nine days with high temperatures above 40 degrees and four days with low temperatures above 20 in February. The average high for today, February 7, is 30 degrees and the average low is 13. However, a month from today, averages will be 42 and average lows will be 23. We are looking for a high of 40 today in Cedar Rapids and a low of 24. A chance of rain or snow is forecast for the remainder of the week. The normal high today again is 30. The normal low is 13. We set a record high of 57 degrees in 1987, a record low of 22 degrees below zero in 1905. Sunset tonight is at 529 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.12 a.m., giving us 10 hours and 16 minutes of daylight. Meteorologist Hannah Messier notes that one month from today, we will have 11 hours and 31 minutes of daylight. We are in the full moon phase with moon rise at 7.27 p.m. and moon set at 8.50 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Tuesday, February 7. I'm your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.